are looking at the most difficult chapter in the most difficult book this morning. So let's pray that God will help me to communicate with clarity and that you'll walk away going, wow, I just learned a bunch of things I didn't know. But more importantly, how this affects our daily lives. Isn't that important? So Lord, we thank you as we study your word, as we're looking at it today. We know that you want to speak into our lives and that we'll gain a deeper understanding as we're coming to the close of the book of Revelation that all of the things that were introduced earlier in the Bible and the theme of the Bible is your great gift of salvation, how you came to set us free from sin and death and judgment. But Lord, as we're looking at the ultimate expression at the end, Father, that we will meet with you as Savior and not experience divine judgment. I pray today that you will help me to share with such clarity uh, an understanding of what the purpose is regarding this uh, concept called the millennium, uh, the different various ideas surrounding it, Lord, over the church's age. And I just pray, Father, today that we'll leave here going, uh, I have a greater clarity, I have a greater understanding, and I feel challenged by what your word is saying to me as an individual. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Now, probably one of the most significant events in the history of the church happened in the 16th century. It's called the Protestant Reformation. And it was a very powerful movement that affected the lives of so many people, even beyond a spiritual understanding of how to have this right relationship with God. It also affected people in a social way. And, and they gave many of the people that were peasants at the time, you know, the lower class people that were oppressed economically, a desire for greater social and economic freedom. But it also had some negative aspects. How many know a lot of times good things can also have spin-offs and people can misunderstand and, and it leads to some very painful experiences? And one of them was a revolt that happened in Germany uh, within a matter of eight or nine years after Luther's... Uh, putting on the 95 Thesis on the door there at Wittenberg. And so in 1524 and 25, uh, the peasants rose up and there was a, you know, kind of a social political movement and they rebelled against their overlords and there was a brutal repression and hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives. So that, that was obviously one of the negative aspects. Another unhealthy offspring of the Reformation was the extreme misunderstanding of Scripture that led to, you know, what we would call the rise and fall of of a kingdom at Munster, Germany. And this happened between 1534 and 1535, which is about two decades after Luther's declaration there. So Protestantism had quickly split into a number of factions in Europe. You had Luther teaching in Germany. We had Calvin teaching in Switzerland. And, And then we had another movement called the Anabaptists. Now the Anabaptists were people who believed that you had to come to faith and personal faith in Christ. So we, we share that tradition with the Anabaptists. And uh, we become baptized as believers as we now be, have an understanding of the Christian faith. Now this was, you know, a whole startling uh, new experience in Europe. And a lot of these groups, not only would they have a main idea, but they would end up splintering off. So there was a lot of splintering happening during the Protestant Reformation. Now, one of the leaders of one of what I would consider an eclectic Anabaptist group was a man by the name of Melchor Hoffman. And he believed that Jesus was coming to set up his thousand-year earthly reign on earth. And 
as Robert Wise said, the apex of his innovative claims was that God had chosen Strasbourg, France, as the new Jerusalem. So now you have to understand, this is kind of where this guy's preaching from, right? And after about three years of his apocalyptic messages pouring forth weekly from his church, local authorities had had enough of him because they'd seen some other difficulties in other parts of Europe. And so perceiving him as a social threat, even though he had never advocated violence in establishing this new order, they imprisoned Hoffman. But you know, a lot of times you can imprison people, but their ideas continue. And there was a baker, you know, by the name of John Mathis, and he began to proclaim that he was none other than the Enoch, the second witness in the book of Revelation. Now you already, how many know right now, shouldn't you have kind of warning bells inside of you? (laughs) You know, like, this is not going to go good. So he starts up, and his followers begin to travel throughout Europe, and they found a receptive audience in the community of Munster, Germany, where the leading preacher of that time was a man by the name of Bernhard Rothman. And he was kind of preaching, you know, he was an Anabaptist preaching similar ideas, and he was explaining the millennium was soon to happen, and large crowds were gathering to hear this guy, Rothman. And so when Mathis heard this, he had a new vision. And his new vision was that Hoffman's uh, plan of Strasbourg as being the new Jerusalem was wrong and that it was actually Munster. And so a whole bunch of people with this kind of thinking started moving to Munster. How many know you get uh, a, a different idea and you get this kind of a group of people moving? It's going to be interesting. And now Brad Gregory in his lectures on the history of Christianity and the Reformation era, he kind of outlines what he calls the Millennium Frenzy. And, uh, and it was sweeping at that time. Because you have to understand, there's an awakening, a spiritual awakening happening in Europe. Okay, That's a good thing. But on the same time, you get people with extreme ideas. And that's not a good thing. And so this guy, John Mathis, promised that baptism would safeguard believers from the coming apocalypse. In other words, this is what you need to do in order to be spared from God's judgment that's going to come on uh, the people in Europe. And so he began to say that Jesus would come on Easter Sunday in 1534. Now he's got the date, you know. By the way, does there kind of any warnings in the Bible about predicting the actual time? Well, this guy had it down. And by February of 1534, the immigration of large numbers of Anabaptists who were buying into this, this thinking were moving into the community at Munster while the, the Lutheran people living there were leaving town. It was getting really weird. So you had a, you know, a bunch of people moving in, a bunch of people moving out, and those that were unwilling to accept adult baptism were now being forced out of the city, and the remainder now were identifying themselves as the true Israelites in the new Jerusalem. You're picking up the language, right? Meanwhile, the exited Roman Catholic bishop of Munster, his name was Franz Waldeck, decided to create a siege around the town. So now you've got this town, you know, fortress with a moat, and you've got the, somebody sieging, you know, not letting anybody in. And so, you know, it's hard to get food into the town. So how many of we are going to have a shortage of food pretty soon? And... Um, so this guy, Franz Waldeck, he so believes that Jesus is coming back on Easter Sunday that he talked 19 other guys, that's about 1,600 people, men, just in the community. He talks 19 of them to rush out and attack the siege troops, right? And they're going to be invincible. Well, how many know that just didn't work out the way he thought? He got killed 
pulling that trick. And immediately a new leader rose up in Munster, a guy by the name of John Van Leiden. And he became a dictatorial prophet king. And with the loss of most of the male population, now there's three times as many women as men, he decides, you know what? We've got to do have polygamy. So he institutes polygamy from the Old Testament and he legitimatizes it by appealing to the book of Genesis and he marries 16 different women whether they want to be married to him or not. You know? How many say this is getting really crazy? Why am I bringing all this out? Because when we have a wrong understanding of Scripture, it's amazing what begins to happen in our thinking. And we can lead to all kinds of crazy things. Fortunately, this was going to be very short-lived. His reign lasted two months. After a 15-month siege, the city's 1,600 defenders were quickly defeated because there was, you know, they scaled the walls and got inside. And meanwhile, there was such a shortage of food that people were dying of starvation inside of the community. And the soldiers who entered witnessed many women lying dead in the streets holding their dead infants in their arms. Most of the inhabitants had been, you know, been so deprived of food for so long, you know, uh, it, it had actually gone on as 15 month, or 15 months siege. Now they were really in a weakened condition. John Van Leiden and his two lieutenants were captured, they were tried, they were tortured, they were finally executed. And to make them an example, they put some cages, put the dead bodies in them, running up the cage on the spire of the churches in town. They left three cages with these dead guys and left them there as a warning to all the people who would rebel against the, the authorities in the community. So, what began as a distorted understanding of Scripture led to a tragic nightmare. Now, there have been many other people like this. We could go down the list. We could talk about Jim Jones. We could talk about David Koresh. We could keep going down the list of people who take the Bible, distort the teaching, and eventually destroy a lot of people's lives. So, what does the Bible teach about the end? What does the Bible teach about the millennium? Well, the millennium is a Latin term that means a thousand years. That's where we get the idea from. And it's mentioned in the book of Revelation in the 20th chapter. And so we're going to turn there this morning. We're going to see what we can learn about Christ's rule and reign here on earth as described in this chapter. We're going to ask the questions. I mean, when I sat down two weeks ago to work on the sermon, I put down 12 questions that I wanted answers to. That was a lot. I go, this, qu- this chapter raises more questions in my mind than answers them. So I just kept writing them down. And so here's a number of questions. Is this a symbolic number that represents our current age? Is this a literal futuristic kingdom that is primarily focused on the nation of Israel and God's promises to her as a nation? The church today is currently divided in its understanding on the millennium. And because it's in the future, how many know today there is no right answer? Okay, so we need to be charitable in our understanding. We could be very dogmatic. We could say, this is the way it is. But that would be a mistake. In Revelation 20, we read of how Satan is bound and imprisoned for a thousand years 
in order to be kept from deceiving the nations, it says. And it is during this period that Jesus reigns with martyred saints, and then after this time, Satan is released to deceive the nations and to gather those nations for a final battle. Satan is captured and he's thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pick it up. Revelation 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, these are four names, all of the same individual, bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. Now, first of all, it's interesting. You know, do you think a spirit could be bound by chains? Or is this a picture so that you and I can grasp that that God is, you know, actually, you know, restraining and restricting what Satan can do? Verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. And they had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now earlier in the book, in chapters 17 and 18, we read there that Satan is cast, sorry, that there's a final battle, right? Remember that? And uh, the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. Here now... uh, we're going to see that Satan is actually bound from his activity on earth. Where in chapter 12 earlier, we saw Satan being cast out of heaven. Isn't that true? Now he's being cast out of earth. So what we're going to look at in this chapter, and I've I've kind of tried to figure out how am I going to communicate this, and I broke it down into three aspects to help us understand the nature of God's judgment, Okay. Because we're going to see in a moment, we're going to end at the great white throne judgment. So we're starting out where God is judging Satan. Then we're going to see God is going to address humanity around the great white throne judgment. But I want to look at three aspects. And the first aspect we're going to discover in God's judgment is the reason for the millennium. Because, I mean, it's really an interesting question. Why would God, you know, bind Satan for a thousand years and then have a rule for a thousand years, and then release them after a thousand years to deceive the nations, to have another final conflict, which we had already read in 17 and 18 with the beast and the false prophet. You know, why would, what's this idea of the millennium? Why is there a millennium? That was one of my questions. Why is there a need for this? So here in chapter 20, we have two separate approaches to the devil. First of all, he's bound And then at the end of the chapter, we're going to find out he's forever now cast into the lake of fire. In other words, forever and ever judged by God, never to be able to operate against humanity. So this first imprisonment is for a specific time, even though it's a long duration, a thousand years, and then sentenced to eternal torment. Why this distinction? 
What we need to understand is the lens we have to use in order to interpret this chapter. Because really there are three positions regarding the millennium in the church world. Three basic positions. Now there's variations of them. But I want to look at these three primary views regarding this thousand year reign of Christ which is called the millennium. The three theological lens in understanding the position are, first of all, you may want to jot these down. I I didn't put them on PowerPoint, but they'll show up eventually. Premillennial, which means before a thousand. You know, postmillennial, after the thousand years. And then allmillennialism. And the word A, the, the letter A in the Greek is a negating word, basically. Like antichrist is... Is, is just no Christ, is, is against Christ. It's opposed to Christ, right? That's the Antichrist. So this is people who say, look, the millennium is actually a symbol. It's symbolic. It's spiritual in nature. And they're called all millennialists, okay? A millennial. All right, so let's take a look here. The premillennialists uh, believe in a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ on earth. The postmillennialists say that, no, Jesus comes after the millennium. In other words, there's a millennium and then Jesus comes. And they're a lot closer to the amillennial position. The the, the postmillennialists basically believe that right now we're in the millennium and we're moving towards making the world a better place because of the gospel, and then Christ will come back. Okay, And then the amillennialists say, no... We're actually ruling and reigning with Christ right now. That Satan was actually bound on the cross. We're now ruling and reigning. And the end will come. It'll all be one event. So, Leon Morris, I think, summarizes it really well for us. He says, Premillennialists hold that at Christ's return, the Christian dead will be raised and believers still on earth will be caught up to meet him in the air and they will reign on earth with Christ for a thousand years, and after this, Satan will be released for time, and this short period will be followed by the raising of the dead. Okay, very literal interpretation of this text. Um, And then, uh, and in this way, there's an explanation of the two resurrections, and finally there comes the judgment of the great white throne. The amillennialists hold that there's no literal millennium. It's symbolic, okay? It stands for the whole time between the life of Jesus on earth and his second coming. That's the millennium. So we're in it right now if you're a non-millennialist. We're experiencing the millennium. They, uh, they usually see the first resurrection as the new birth of the believer, his rising from the death from sin. So that's how they interpret that. So you can see already now people are interpreting things a little differently. And just to go back over church history... Initially, the church was premillennial, what is called the historical premillennial position. Then they became amillennialists. Then eventually they became postmillennialists. And then there was a new resurgence of premillennialism called dispensational premillennialism, which was introduced in the 1850s. All right, you follow all that? I know there's a lot of stuff you go, who cares? I know, but it's interesting. And and, and if you don't understand it, you're reading books on Revelation and where people are interpreting and you're going, I don't understand what they're doing. Well, this is a lens that they're looking at the text from. Okay. So, the amillennialists see the promises of the Old Testament as being fulfilled in the church. What they're saying is the true Israel now is the church. 
that, you know, that, that what God promised the nation now is being given to the church. Some people call it replacement theology. They believe the angel binding Satan is none other than Jesus, that he bound him when he died on the cross. And there's a truth to that, isn't there? Because when we read in Colossians, you know, Jesus did bind the work of darkness, right? Sam Hamstrung Jr. relates that this vision is a picture of what's happening in heaven while saints are struggling on earth below. Now, remember when this book was written. Just think back. Roman Empire, church is starting out. It's birth, birth out of Judaism, small fledgling groups of people, emperor worship, very predominant. Most people were you know, believing in many gods. And, of course, worshiping Caesar, he was perceived as being God. Okay? So... And, and the church saw itself as being persecuted and struggling. And all of a sudden, John has this vision and begins to show a revelation of Jesus who's in control of everything. Because when you read the book of Revelation, what you're noticing is it's in, most of it's happening in heaven. And you're getting a divine vantage point, And you're seeing the authority and majesty and glory of Almighty God. And what I thought was interesting, I never saw this before, but the book of Revelation has 38 expressions on the throne of God. It's speaking of God's authority and power. And all of a sudden you're realizing that what's really happening on earth is a lot different than what God is doing in heaven. And this is how Sam Hamstrung Jr. relates it. John, in an effort to encourage the faithful, takes the believer behind the scenes of earthly persecution to witness a sovereign Christ and a bound Satan. The vision affirms that Jesus is the victor and the martyrs are alive. They just happen to be in God's presence. Again, Robert Stripple explains how an amillennialist sees the end of the age. With regard to the New Testament revelation concerning the future, however, we must say even more than that, not only does the New Testament not teach a future millennial kingdom, this is an amillennialist position, what it teaches about Christ's second coming, the New Testament rules out an earthly millennial kingdom following Christ's return because the New Testament reveals clearly that the following events are all concurrent. In other words, they're all happening at the same time. That is, all will occur together in one cluster of end-time event, one grand dramatic finality of redemption history, the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of believers, and the changing of living believers the resurrection of the unjust, the judgment for all, the end, the new heaven, the new earth, the inauguration of the final kingdom of God, the blessed eternal state of the redeemed. So what they're basically saying is what you need to understand, and every position holds this. Do you know Jesus is going to come back? And what's going to happen is he's going to judge the world. And every position agrees with this. It's just a matter of sequence. It's just a matter of, you know, was Jesus going to come back? And there's going to be a rapture of the church, and then there's a thousand-year reign for some saints with Jesus, and then the end, the ultimate end? Or, as the other two positions, post-millennialists and all-millennialists believe, no, it's just going to be one big thing. Jesus is going to come back and everything happens at once. And that the millennial idea is a totally different concept than what a premillennialist thinks. That's basically the difference, Okay. Everybody follow it? Am I, am I, is everybody kind of tracking with me? I know this is a little bit of information, but I think it's important we understand it. Because the point I'm trying to get across is no matter what position you take, 
Every one of them agrees Jesus is coming back. Every one of them agrees that Jesus is going to rule and reign forever. Every one of them agrees of all of these different things. They just see the sequentialing and scope of it a little differently. That's all I'm trying to bring out here. Um, Kenneth Gentry Jr. advocates for the post-millennial viewpoint in explaining how he and others of his viewpoint understanding understand the binding of Satan as having already occurred. And this is what he says. The context specifically qualifies the purpose of the binding in order that Satan not deceive the nations. Remember, it'll say that. A little earlier, a little later in the chapter here, it says, um, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations. So this is what he's talking about here. That was verse 7. He says, before the coming of Christ, all nations beyond the borders of Israel were under the dominion of Satan. How many know that's probably true? There was only the Jewish people who knew who the true and the living God was. Unless they were individuals that came to Israel for information, the rest of the world was in the dark. True? That is true. He says, um, Israel alone of all the peoples of the earth was an oasis in a sin-parched world. Only they knew the true God and salvation. But with the coming of Christ and the spread of the gospel of the kingdom beyond the borders of Israel, Satan began losing his dominion over the Gentiles. And now we can say this is true because today the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone out to all the nations. And today there are Christians all over the world from every kindred, tribe, language, and tongue that are coming into the kingdom of God. Let me say that is true. And there are some estimates that today there are 2 billion Christians living on the planet. That's pretty significant, wouldn't you say? Especially when you start out in the first century with just a handful of people. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And that's what he's saying. In Revelation 20, 4-6, we see the positive implications of Christ's kingdom. While Satan is bound, Christ rules and his redeemed people participate with him in that rule. In other words, what he's saying is, you know, see the premillennials will argue against it and go, well, Satan's not bound, look what he's doing. But no, what these guys are saying is, no, Satan is bound in the sense that he cannot deceive people in the same way he did before Christ's first coming. That's their answer back. How many get a little idea that this is quite a sophisticated presentation and argument between the three groups, but they all are saying some things that are truthful, and that's what I'm trying to bring across to you today. To those who hold to the premillennial position that teaches that there are a thousand years reign on earth, even someone like Grant Osborne, who is what we would call a premillennialist, says this, and I think it's fascinating. He said, he says the millennium is an indefinite but perfect period of time. Obviously, much longer than the period of the Antichrist reign, which is really 42 months, but it's still a symbolic period. In other words, he doesn't even see this number as a literal thousand years. He sees it as a long, protracted period of time. So God's reign and rule is going to be a long time. Satan's uh, endeavor is going to be a short moment where he can actually try to deceive people. And in a sense, there's a truth even in our personal lives. We all are going to live for eternity. Every human being is. So Satan's activity in our life is somewhat limited, if you think about it. It's only the duration of our lifetime, right? You know, after that, when Christ comes, or when we pass away and go into God's presence, that's the end of his influence. And from that point on, you and I are not dealing with sin. We're not dealing with Satan. We're not dealing with the world anymore. We're free from all of that. So we need to understand that. 
So now as we're reading through these chapters of Revelation, we ask ourselves, and this is an important question, are these things sequential and chronological, or is what John's seeing happening simultaneously? And I had a little thought when I was in my office. I was thinking about this. Some of us, you know, have been to Rome, and I actually went to the Vatican. How many have ever seen the Sistine Chapel? You know, it's, you know this is Michelangelo's work. It's absolutely beautiful. You get in there, you know. It's not as big as you think it is, but it's still pretty significant. And what you do when you look up on the ceiling of the chapel, you see these beautiful pictures. How many have seen at least pictures of of, uh, the Sistine Chapel? You've seen the ceiling. Isn't that great? The hand of God reaching down to touch Adam's hand. How many have ever seen that picture? That's a pretty famous picture. Okay, so there's all these pictures. Now, if you were going to describe for someone what you were seeing, what would you do? You couldn't just take one, because there's so much going on there, isn't there? There's, there's all these different scenes. So I think what John is doing in Revelation is he's seeing things, and then he's describing what he's seeing. He's seeing this, and then he describes it. He's seeing this, and then he's describing it. So, you know, we can either say these are things are happening chronologically and in sequence, or we can say, no, this is what John is seeing, and he's describing it. So depending on your viewpoint, you're going to either argue that the Antichrist and the beast were cast into the lake of fire, and all the nations were gathered for war, that's a, a separate in, incident from when Satan is captured and thrown into the lake of fire and he, people are judged and the nations are gathered for war. Or it's, as some argue, it's the same thing happening. It's just a different picture. One is the focus on the Antichrist, the false prophet. The other is on Satan. Notice I'm not answering questions. I'm just raising a whole bunch of questions because the reality is, I would argue with you today, nobody knows for sure. Okay? So I'm just pointing out the different ways of seeing this. But let me move on to the second aspect we discover in God's judgment is the sentence of Satan. There's some things that we know are going to happen. Number one, there is a reigning with Christ. Either we're reigning with him now, which Scripture seems to indicate we are, or we're going to reign with him physically on earth for a thousand years, right? One of those two is going to happen. And, you know, it's whatever you think. But eventually we're going to find out which is right, you know. And then the second thing we know for sure is that Satan, the devil, the enemy to humanity and the great rebel against God is going to be sentenced. We know that that's going to happen. But what initially baffles us is why Satan, who's been bound, is now released. That's probably a more important question than I think. That's one of my questions I wrote down. Maybe... So we read here, verse 7, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They march against the breadth of the earth, surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves, which is Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, that's good news. So, what's this Gog and Magog? Great question. There's much speculation as to the identity of these two names. But remember I told you something about John? He's, he's a Jewish person, right? And I believe it's probably John the Apostle that had this. Some people argue it may be a different John. I don't, who knows, but I'm convinced it's the Apostle. The point is simply this. 
John is full of the Old Testament. He knows all the Bible. He knows the prophecies of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel talks about Gog and Magog. And it says in Ezekiel chapter 38, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Set your face against Gog of the land of Magog. So Magog is an area and Gog is a person. The chief prince of Meshach and Tubal and prophesy against him. So Gog of Magog is a leader in Magog by the name of Gog. And say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I'm against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with your whole army. So Ezekiel's having a vision of an army coming against God's people in the nation of Israel. And God says, I'm going to defeat this army. Okay? That's what Ezekiel's telling the nation. He says, Persia, which by the way today is Iran, Cush, which is Egypt, and Put will be with them, all with shields and helmets, also Gomer with all its troops, and Beth to Gomath from the far north with all its troops, the many nations with you. So this is why when you're reading books on prophecy, we're talking about Russia and Iran and all these things that are going on. This is where people are getting these ideas from, okay? Do you follow that? This is where they're coming up with this stuff. I'm just saying to you, John is saying, he mentions Gog of Magog, and this is a a direct connection to this prophecy in the book of Ezekiel. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, this is what the sovereign Lord says, in that day when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice of it? You will come from your place in the far north, you and the many nations with you, all of them riding on on horses, a great horde and a mighty army. So obviously, this is the gathering of the peoples to fight against the people of God. That's a concept that we read in the book of Revelation. We've seen it. The nations coming against God's people. And by the way, I think that we're seeing that today. Even now, we're seeing nations coming against God's people. You know, that's what Pastor Mark was talking about. Anytime we have people persecuting the church, that's nations coming against God's people. Anytime you have the spirit of anti-Semitism, that's the spirit of the Antichrist coming against God's people. How many see that? It's happening all the time. We've seen it over and over again. It says, You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, Gog, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. Uh, Many suggestions now have been offered for the identity of Gog. And some of these include uh, Gugu, a ruthless leader of Lydia, Gadju, a ruler of the land of Shaki, which is north of Assyria, an unidentified ruler whose name is from a Samaritan loan word, Gug, which means darkness, an official title for a ruler comparable to a pharaoh or a king or a general term for any enemy of God's people. How many can see? We don't know. That's the reality. Why am I bringing all that out? Because, you know, a lot of people talk as if they know all this stuff, and I'm going, I don't know if we know any of this stuff. We're just guessing, okay? Lamar Cooper in his commentary on Ezekiel brings this, uh, this kind of stuff out. One of the interesting interpretations identifies Gog as a cryptogram for Babel or Babylon. This identification does bear some consideration since Babylon was omitted from the nations mentioned in the messages of judgment in Ezekiel 25 to 32. It is strange that Ezekiel would admit the one nation that had to be judged to secure the release of the Hebrew captives. 
If this identification is correct, Gog was a symbol of the Antichrist foreseen by Ezekiel. If the word Gog is from the Samaritan Gug, meaning darkness, that would be an additional support for treating him as a symbol of the prince of this world. An appropriate designation that fits the character of the ruler of end-time Babylon. Well, that's one person's opinion. But why am I bringing this all out? Because I think there is a little bit of symbolism here. I think what's being said is that there is going to come a time when the world is going to come against God's people, be it the church or the nation of Israel, or both. I think it's both, okay? I'm just giving you my opinion. Judgment against the enemies of God's people. Uh, The question we have to ask ourselves, is this the same battle, this final battle, as the battle against the Antichrist and the false prophet? Because, you know, both times Jesus just calls forth deliverance and it happens. Now one says, well, you know, they're a little bit different. There's a different expression. That doesn't mean that they're different judgments. It just means they're expressed differently. Or is it a different judgment? It depends on your lens. Okay. But here's what I... I want to bring out, we may not be able to answer the question with certainty, but another question is the purpose of this time of captivity and then release. In other words, why does God allow Satan to be bound and then released? Isn't that a more important question? I think it is. That's a question that comes in my mind. And I like what Robert Muntz in his commentary on Revelation, he makes an argument, even if Satan were not a factor, We all have had the time to see what a righteous rule would be like. In other words, if Christ is ruling for this millennium, we're all seeing what this rule brings. The nature of both Satan, the devil, and those who rebel against God's will are, no matter how much time God gives gives them, they will never change their minds. That's the argument. See, in other words, Mount, Mount says this, He says, this thousand years is to make plain that neither the designs of Satan nor the waywardness of the human heart will be altered by the mere passing of time. In other words, no matter how how long God gives people and no matter how good God is to people, people are locked into their position. Isn't that amazing? You know, it it really is arguing simply this. Because I've heard this argument a lot from people. If a person commits a sin, why is it that God punishes them for all of eternity? It's a sin in time, right? Why is there being eternal punishment? Anybody ever talk to you like that? That's kind of a good question, isn't it? Here's the answer. The answer is, no matter how long you and I would live, we're going to continue to sin. That does make sense. And number two, if we continue to rebel against God for all of eternity, then it's just on God's part to allow us to be punished for all of eternity. And I'm going to show you the kind of punishment God's going to bring, what I think is going to happen. So, Satan's ongoing, uh, the purpose is to prove the power of total depravity and demonstrate once and for all the necessity of eternal punishment. That's why we have the millennial concept. That's why, you know, Satan is bound. That's why he's released after a large period of time because people are going to still choose what's wrong. Um, The millennium then, according to Grant Osborne, is the judicial evidence that will convict the earth dwellers and prove that their eternal sin demands eternal judgment. 
We're eternally rebels. We're going to spend eternity in punishment. Which really, you know what the punishment is? Just being absent from God. That's the punishment. You know, some people go, well, that doesn't sound too bad, Pastor. Just to be absent from God. But in a moment, I'm going to tell you how bad that really is. Because when you take God out of the equation, what you have is a sense of hopelessness. And see, I think our society today is living with this in their minds. This torment and this, this anguish and this anxiety and these fears and all the things that go on inside of us. We live with this. And because we're having a hard time coping with it, there's certain things we try to do to handle it. We either self-medicate. We do that with alcohol and drugs, right? Or, you know what? Some people go, the pain is too great. We, we just commit suicide. And here's the problem, though. In, in eternity you won't be able to self-medicate. And you won't be able to end your life. So you'll have to live with yourself for the rest of eternity. And that'll be cruel punishment. Because what you and I are doing with our life is, is we're becoming something. As we live, we're becoming something. And we're either becoming more like God and, and, there, and greater peace is coming into our life and greater joy is coming into our life and greater hope is coming to our life or we're moving away from God and greater darkness is filling our soul and greater torment is filling our minds and greater anxieties are filling our hearts and greater fears are enveloping us. Now, can you imagine? It's not powerful. So we have a choice. Do we need, do we need to be delivered from this terrible condition that we're in? And the answer is yes, and I don't think, you know, self-medicating is going to do it. Now, a New Testament scholar Robert Wall relates regarding Satan's role in God's ultimate plan of salvation. You know, God even takes the deviations of life and works it into his purposes. And he says this, Satan's ongoing role within salvation's history, even in defeat, is to force humanity's ultimate decisions concerning eternal life and death. The evil one's mission is to deceive humanity so that it will not choose wisely. Wow. Eugene Peterson writes concerning this vision of a conquering Christ over a defeated enemy. He says, we do not live in a benign and, and uh, neutral world. There is a maligned opposition, an evil will at work to deceive and destroy us. Salvation att attacks an enemy. You know, it's amazing when I'm not a Christian, I don't notice any conflict, but the moment I give my life to Christ, I, I'm experiencing a spiritual battle. How many kind of notice that? You know, well, every time these evangelists get up and say, you know, when you come to Jesus, everything's going to work out, I go, no, that's not exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> don't promise that. What you're doing is you're promising them eternal life. You're promising them joy. You're promising them forgiveness and hope. But listen, you're also making them aware that there's a spiritual battle going on, and all of a sudden you're in it. Before you were a captive, now you're actually a participant in the conflict. But the good news is we have a commander who's defeated the enemy, and once we understand our position in Christ, we can live in victory. Yeah, it's great. He goes on to say, uh, oh, Fl uh, Fl Flannery O'Connor says, Our salvation is a drama Played out with the devil, a devil who's not simply a generalized evil, but an evil intelligence determined on its own supremacy. So he's the ultimate rebel against God, and he's trying to get everybody to join his rebellion. You know, one idea regarding Satan being released to deceive the nation is as the Apostle Paul describes this rise of this Antichrist figure, and he warns against 
the seductive nature of it and the apostasy that will occur even in the church. And we read this in Second Thessalonians. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed and the man doomed to destruction. Then Jesus says it this way. They tell, they tell us, they said, when will this happen? Talking about the end of the age. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Now, I think this is an important message we need to hear from Jesus. If we're living in this hour between Christ's first coming and second coming, and he's saying just prior to his second coming, we're going to have this experience I think there's a call now for us to persevere and endure. How many see what I'm talking about? That we need to be aware that there's a spiritual battle going on and we can't be sucked in and duped and deceived by all the antics that are going on around us. Well, let me move on here to the final aspect we discover in God's judgment is the sentencing of the dead. What we now have before us is the great white throne judgment of the dead. And what is interesting is that in Revelation there are seven scenes in the book of Revelation where we're standing before the throne of God. How many know seven is an amazing number? It keeps popping up in this book. It's talking about the completion, the fulfillment, the perfection. We're standing before the throne of God. This is the final one. We're standing before the great white throne. Now, I know premillennialists believe only the unbelievers are going to stand there. I'm going to share a thought, you know, Maybe I'm going to share a little different, divergent thought. Maybe I've been influenced by the all-millennialist position. But I think this is where it's all going to happen at one time. Now look what it says here in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. In other words, this is speaking of the power and majesty of God. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. That's the book that's important. By the way, uh, that's the role in every city. The book, there's the book in every city that says you're a citizen of that city. This is the book of life that says you're a citizen of heaven. That book is open. You've got to have your name in there that you're going to actually go to heaven. He says, uh, it's the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, plural. That's important. There's more than one book. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death in Hades. Hades is just another name for the grave or the place of the departed from life. They gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So what do we need to understand? That we're all going to stand before God. And I'm going to ask a question. In the New Testament we are taught something very interesting. And this is what Jesus says in John chapter 5. And he makes the concept very clear. He says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So who's going to be the judge? Christ. See, the New Testament reveals the nature of God. The Old Testament doesn't bring this up. The New Testament shows us a concept that we, the theologians, term the Trinity. God, there's one God, but he's in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Son has been given the responsibility to judge. So not only is Jesus the Savior, he's also the judge. You caught, you caught that? He has two responsibilities, the Savior, he's the judge. When we come before the throne of God, depending on who we are, we're going to see him differently. 
For everyone whose name is in the book of life, who knows Jesus as Savior, when we come before the throne of God, we're going to see him as Savior. And for every person who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, when they stand before him in the throne, they're going to see him as a judge. That's it. There's only two ways of seeing him. You and I are going to rejoice at that day because we know we're acquitted. We know that Jesus died on our behalf. We know that our sins have been addressed on Calvary's cross. We know that our life has been shaped and defined by the person sitting on the throne. But a lot of people, that's not how they're going to define their life at all. Their life has been totally defined differently. As a matter of fact, Daryl Johnson reminds us that you know we're going to be judged according to what we did in our body, the deeds done. As a matter of fact, he says it this way, deeds reveal our values, our character, our true allegiance, and they reveal what we really believe. You see, it's, we're saved by grace, we're saved by trusting in Christ, but that means that it transforms us to such a degree that it changes how we're going to live our lives and the the values that we place on different things and the way we expend our lives and the way we serve God. It all is affected by the fact that we have this relationship with God. And then Paul says it this way in the book of Romans. He says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. In other words, what is it that I'm pursuing? I'm pursuing after God's glory. I'm seeking that God would be glorified. I'm seeking for his honor. And I I am seeking for immortality. I know that I have life because my life is found in him. And it's true of all of us who put our trust in Christ. And he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking, and who reject the truth, and who follow evil, there will only be wrath and anger. How many get a sense that there's just really no other options here? Where there's no fence sitting, there's no, you know, we got a hundred options. No, there's only, there's only two roads, there's only two paths. One is narrow, one is broad. Jesus talks about it. We have to get away from this pluralistic thinking that there's all these ways to God. Folks, there's only one way to God, and it's through Jesus Christ, the one who died for us. That is God who made that provision for humanity. We need to understand that. So what can I take from this chapter? You know, I pray with men before the service. Dragon said, so pastor, what should we pray for? I mean, I was trying to explain a little bit of this. I said, okay, here's four things I think you need to get from this chapter. Number one, Christ will return ultimately to reign and completely defeat the power of Satan for all of eternity. That should be a yes, right? That's the winning side. That's that's who's going to ultimately triumph. God is not, you know, this is not a dualistic concept where God and Satan are equal. They're not. God is above the enemy, and he's greater than the enemy, and he's only allowing Satan to operate to a certain dimension for a certain season for a certain purpose, and then he will be forever judged. We need to understand that. Number two, that the millennium is an answer for why eternal punishment. No matter how long we have, we have chosen our eternal destiny by how we have responded to God's call on our lives. Number three, we are warned about a great spiritual apostasy. And therefore, this book is calling us to perseverance and endurance in the face of suffering, tribulation, trial, and difficulty. No matter how hard your life is, no matter how many temptations come your way, it is worth serving God. Number four, 
Christ will judge all of humanity according to what they have done. Those whose faith in Christ have shaped their life and actions are blessed with eternal life, and the second death will never touch them. Those whose lives are not written in the book of life, those who have not surrendered to Christ, who are not living their lives in obedience to him, will be forever separated from God, which is the ultimate punishment. And I've already shared when we stand before him. We'll either see him as Savior or Judge. You know, as I was thinking about this message, and I've been thinking about it for the last two weeks, and I kind of painted that emotional picture. You know, I, we can talk about a spiritual picture, but think about the emotional picture, how broken so many people are. And they're in so much pain. There's so much sorrow inside of their soul, so much heartache and brokenness, so much, you know, maybe they've been violated, and all the things that go on in our lives to create a sense of our mental well-being. Can I tell you right now, Jesus wants to heal that. Jesus wants to bring about a transformation in your life. Jesus wants to give you hope and joy and peace. Jesus wants to transform you so that you can live forever in a state of blessedness, in a state of happiness, in a state of eternal hope. But if you reject him, all you're going to have left is the state of a life apart from God, a life of anxiety, a life of despair, and a life of hopelessness for all of eternity, with nothing to curb the pain. What a sad, sad story. We have a choice. So let's stand this morning as we close. I hope you're walking away today saying, okay, I get this to some degree. I get this. This is making a little bit of sense to me right now, Pastor. I think it does. I think it's just working. All the, all of the ideas of the Bible are being worked in to come to the end here. But you know, today I'd be remiss if I did not give you an opportunity to respond to Christ as Savior. I don't want to stand before Him and all I see is a judge. I want to stand before Him and know that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. To know I've been forgiven to know that I can choose a better way. And I believe God's Spirit is here today. And God is calling you today. Maybe you don't know Him as your Savior. You've never surrendered to Him. You see, the Bible says that if we call upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved. And every person that calls upon the Lord shall be saved. But if we keep rebelling against Him, there will be one day where people will bow before Him. They will bow before the Lord. It says, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Every knee. Because at that moment, they'll be bowing before the sovereign of the created world, the universe. They'll be bowing before their maker, the creator, the one who who owes our allegiance, and he is the one we're all accountable to. You can say, well, I don't even believe in God, Pastor. You know, a blind person can tell me they don't see something. That doesn't mean it's not there just means they're blind you know there is a God folks and the more you study and even a lot of the scientists today they're becoming Christians and I'll tell you why because there's no way to explain the complexities of this world without a divine creator I'm serious you cannot study DNA and not be blown away 
Isn't it amazing that Satan can be released to deceive the nation? And people want to believe a lie rather than believe the truth. And you know why? Because they want to do their own thing. They want to rebel against a divine authority, a moral authority. They want to rebel against the one who defines what is right and what is wrong. And our culture today is so confused on this question. We are deciding what's right and wrong. And you know what? It's doing it to our own hurt. We're doing so much damage in people's lives by making those calls. Let's let God define for us what's right. Let's let God define for us what's wrong. The boundaries to protect us because he cares about us. And maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? I've never surrendered my life to Christ. But as I'm listening to this, I realize we're all moving towards this day that we're all going to stand before God. And at that moment, I don't want to stand there and go, my name's not in the book of life. And now I'm going to be judged based on what I've been doing. And it's not based on my moral standard. It's based on his moral standard. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all failures. And that's why Jesus came. God himself became a man, died, and died for our sin. He became a substitute for us. If we will receive him, he takes on himself the sin of the world. You and I can have our sins addressed right there by surrendering to him as Savior. And when we get to heaven, when we stand before Christ, we'll see him as Savior. With every head bowed, how many here say, you know what? That's what I want to do. I want to see him as Savior. I got my hand up. I want to see him as Savior. Not as judge. I want to see him as Savior. Is there anyone here that you need to see him as Savior, but you've never done this before? You've never surrendered to Christ. You know, put all your hands down now. Anyone here today, you want to receive Christ, say, you know what, I want to receive him as my Savior. Just raise your hand. Okay. One person, that's great. Good. Wonderful. Put your hand down now. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that you're revealing yourself through your word. You're revealing yourself as a savior. You're showing us, Lord, that ultimately sin and death and Satan will all be judged and they will all be eradicated. They'll be, they'll be punished. We just thank you for that in Jesus' name. We thank you for life. We thank you that you etch our names in the book of life. And Lord, I just pray today that we will live a life that seeks honor and glory and immortality. We will live in obedience to you, that we'll live under your lordship, that we will not live in rebellion to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that we will be obedient to doing your will for our lives. And I pray that the blessing of knowing you will continue to intensify in our lives for all of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.